It's good to see everybody. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. And uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, I got to be honest, I just assumed today was Christmas Sunday because we always uh, do Christmas before, right? It's the Sunday before the 25th. But this year, Christmas is on the 26th, it's right after, and then I was looking at some other churches' websites, and some churches are doing Christmas next week, and I I just assumed, I never said it. Some churches are doing it today, too, so now I'm kind of like, should we not do, should we do Christmas again next week? The fourth, the fourth gift, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure yet, actually. Eric's on vacation, so I'll ask him what we should do when he comes back. Um, but anyway, for the past few weeks, we've been going through Advent, an Advent series. Uh, we've been going through the gifts of the Magi, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Two weeks ago, we did gold. Last week, we did myrrh. This, I mean, last week, we did frankincense, sorry. Uh, this week, we're doing myrrh. Um, I think you expected that. It'd be weird if I was like, and this week, we're doing the glory of Christmas, and I just never talk about myrrh. The rest of this church, it's kind of that hidden thing that we never talk about. We're talking about myrrh today. We need closure. So if you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, that's where we've been kind of in this text, but jumping off to go to different places to talk about gold in the Bible and frankincense in the Bible, and today, myrrh in the Bible. Matthew 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we could come before your word this afternoon. God, your word is truth. Our faith comes from hearing your word. So God, I pray that you would build us up through your word, that you would reveal yourself through your word. God, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to your word during this time. And God, I know that a lot of us are distracted by different things. God, I just pray that you would help us, that you would give us the grace to focus and, and to really take in what your word has to say about these gifts and a, more importantly about your son. God, we know that Jesus is the reason 
for the season, as people say, God, but Jesus really is the reason for everything. And I pray, Father, that we would see that. Thank you, Father. We pray that he would be glorified during this time, that he would increase, that we would decrease. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> when Paul was young, his family was one of the first families in the neighborhood to have a telephone. That kind of dates the story a little bit. Some of you don't even know about the tele before the phone, but that's what it used to be back in the day. Paul was fascinated by this new technology. I mean, if you think about it, he's a kid, first of all, and this is a new thing. Not a lot of people have it. But before telephones, right, I mean, you couldn't talk to people unless you went to go see them. You could send a telegram or something like that. You could look it up in the history books. But telephones allowed you to pick up a receiver and just talk to people who were miles away. You could hear their voice in real time. They could hear yours. And some of you remember this. But to Paul, the most amazing part of this new technology, of this incredible machine, was the person that lived inside of it. Because when you picked up the receiver and you said, information, please, someone would respond back and say, information. He loved this person named information, please. She knew everything. She could tell you what time it was. She could connect you to anybody you wanted to talk to. Now, for the younger people out here, um, I did some research, some archaeology, so I could tell you about this. But back in the day, before cell phones and smartphones and all of that, when you picked up a landline phone to call, there was an operator on the line that you could talk to who could con connect you to different things. And what Paul was experiencing was talking to the operator that was on duty. It was her job to answer questions and to connect people to different people. So back in the good old days, all you had to do was pick up and say, information, please, and there she was. So one day, Paul got into the tools in the basement, and he smashed his finger with a hammer, and his mom had stepped outside to talk to the neighbor real quick, so he's, like, really upset. His finger hurts. He doesn't know what to do because his mom left. So he sees the phone, and he's like, I know what I'm going to do. He picks up the phone, and he says, information, please. And the woman says, information. And he says, I hurt my finger, right? He's, like, crying. And she's like, oh, are you bleeding? Uh, he says, no, I'm not bleeding. She says, okay, go to the freezer get a piece of ice, put it on your finger, and it'll feel better. And it did. And from that day on, anytime Paul had any problems at all, any questions, instead of going to his parents, he went to information, please. He called her when he didn't know where Philadelphia was. He called her when he didn't know what three plus five equal to. He called her when he wanted to know what chipmunks eat. And then there was the day when Paul's pet bird, his canary, died. And he called to tell her all about it. He just couldn't understand why do things die? How can it be that one day uh, she's alive and healthy and singing and I can play with her, but then the next day they're just gone? Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jesse, right? You do remember it's Christmas, right? Or maybe it's next week. But you know that this is the Christmas season. This is all part of a series. The past two sermons we did on gold and frankincense, we started with Christmas stories, and it's very apropos to do that. So what does a telephone operator and this history lesson and this story about a pet bird dying have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with this holiday and the birth of Christ? Well, on the one hand, nothing. Okay, I'll give you that. It's not a Christmas story. There's no gifts involved. No trees doesn't take place on December 25th as like a background to it. it but on the other hand, and bear with me for a moment, 
I honestly think it has everything to do with Christmas. Sure, hitting your finger with a hammer and having a pet bird pass are somewhat childish trials. But if you dig deeper to kind of the heart of what's going on in that story, when you think about what's going on, even though it's from a child's perspective, it's pain and it's loss. These are the things that we think about at Christmas sometimes. Because honestly, if you ask around, even a little bit, you come to find that there's no time of the year where pain and suffering hurt more than at Christmas time. Christmas isn't an easy holiday for a lot of people. For some, it's already, it's an, uh, another stressor to an already difficult season, right? You're stressed, you're overwhelmed by life, and now you got to run around and do all these other things. you got to buy things you can't afford. you got to hang out with people and see relatives you don't really like, to be honest. And then for some of us, Christmas is a terrible reminder of all the good times that will never be again. Right? It could be the first Christmas without him or without her, and the emptiness inside just grows, especially when you see people like celebrating with their loved ones or wishing each other a Merry Christmas or laughing and singing. I mean, those things hurt when certain things are taken away. Christmas can be lonely. It can be depressing. I saw that there was this health group that started tracking people's responses to antidepressant medication, and they wanted to see kind of how it worked and how well it worked. And what they found kind of incidentally was that the worst day of the year for depressed people who are medicated is Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is the worst, the hardest, most difficult day of the, uh, of the year. And look, okay, all that being said, I'm not trying to rain on your parade if you're happy today. If you love Christmas and you're like, man, come on, dude, like, got to be joy to the world next week. That's good. Okay, you should love Christmas. You should be joyful. There is a lot of happiness in it and wonder and glory and peace on earth. Don't feel guilty. But out of the three weeks that we've talked about Advent, as we've gone over these different gifts, I think it's good that at least one week we acknowledge the red and green elephant in the room, which is that Christmas is hard for a lot of people right here. Like I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people in our church lost loved ones this year parents, friends. There are people going through family drama, suffering with health issues, missing kids that have grown up and don't visit that often. For you guys, and maybe it's not all of you, okay, but for those of you who it's not, just bear with it for the rest of the people here. For you guys, this sermon is for you because today we're talking about myrrh. We're talking about myrrh, and it's for all of us, of course, but don't think God forgot about you guys. Like I said, today is the final series of this Gift of the Magi thing we're doing. Uh, we're talking about frankincense. We're talking about myrrh. And we've, we've been talking about these kind of famous gifts for the past couple of weeks. Actually, um, Thor and Janice gave me some frankincense uh, today. You know, I said I was going to buy some and give it out. So I have like a, a bag of it. If you want to meet me at the trunk of my car, I could give you some. <laughs> After service, if you want to see it. No goals for you guys, though. Sorry. Okay, I'm just a pastor. Uh, but we've been talking about these famous gifts that, uh, that the wise men gave the newborn, what they are, how the Bible kind of talks about them in different contexts, and really why they are so appropriate for the baby Jesus. Gold points us to his kingship. And you see that thread woven throughout the Matthew 2 narrative. Frankincense directs, uh, directs our heart 
our, our hearts to worship. But myrrh takes us down a different path. So let's go down that path, three points as usual. First, the humanity. The humanity, which is about what myrrh points to. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What is myrrh? Gold, we know, it's valuable. It's found in palaces. It's what crowns are made of. And so when we search the scriptures, we talked about this, we often see gold associated with kings, with royalty. Frankincense, maybe we had no idea what it was until last week when we talked about it, but it's in the name, Frank Incense. And so when you search the scriptures, it's not that surprising that almost every single time we see frankincense, it's connected in some way to the temple and to worship and to sacrifice and to offering to religion. Gold is royal. Frankincense is religious. But what about myrrh? Well, first of all, myrrh has a lot of similarities with frankincense. Someone was telling me last week that they had put frankincense essential oil into their diffuser. And with frankincense, it's all about the smell. And nowadays, you don't normally see it in its solid form. You see it in like an essential oil form. Now, that's not how it was back then. But myrrh, okay, it's also about the frankincense. But normally, it's found in an oil form. So if you have like myrrh essential oil, which I saw online, um, I didn't buy it, but which I saw online, it's not that different than what you would have seen a long time ago. In fact, myrrh and frankincense are kind of made in the same way. Uh, they're both found from trees, um, but myrrh isn't found from the Boswellia tree like frankincense. It's made from the Camifera tree, another kind of tree, but the process is really similar. They would scrape the bark off a little bit, and then sap would start to ooze out you know, slowly. They would wait a few weeks, a few months, and then later they would collect the hardened resin or the hardened sap, and they would call it myrrh gum, Okay. But they wouldn't usually sell it as gum. They would kind of boil it down or whatever they did to make it into a liquid, to make it into an oil. And then they would put it in a doTERRA bottle, you know, and they would sell it to people and have them sell it to people. I'm just kidding. But that's basically what it was. With myrrh, just like with frankincense, it was all about the smell. Now, the smell of myrrh is a little different, okay, uh, according to the the different trees that they might use. It could smell a little sweet, maybe a little earthy. Some smell like roses, some forms of myrrh. But basically, kind of the, the common denominator is that myrrh smelled kind of bitter. And I'm not a smell expert, so I don't even know what bitter smell is exactly, but it has kind of this bitter smell. You could buy some and check it out. But that's what myrrh is. It's an oil that people would use for its smell, for its fragrance. It, it would cover up bad smells. It would be used as a perfume. Now, what's the deal with myrrh? Okay, unlike with gold and frankincense, there's no one place in scripture that, ten, uh, that myrrh tends to show up. It shows up all over. In fact, let me show you. Look at, look at your Bibles with me at Esther chapter 2. Go to Esther 2. And this is before the Psalms, okay? So it's toward the beginning-ish of your, body, uh, of your Bible, um, it's after Nehemiah and Ezra. Esther 2. And look at verse 12. Esther 2, verse 12. 
Now, okay, you guys there, Esther 2.12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Okay, you can stop there real quick. I know I'm just dropping down into Esther. But what's going on here is that the king was displeased with his wife, his, the queen, and he decides to get rid of her and marry someone else and have a new queen. That's kind of the beginning of the book of Esther. It's kind of like the bachelor, but like Persian empire edition. And all these young women are lined up as prospective wives for the king. And one of them is a Jewish woman named Esther who is very beautiful. Okay, but before they just, you know, parade them in with the red roses or whatever, what happens is they get all these women and they spend months getting them ready. They beautify them. And if you look at the text in verse 12 again, what is the first thing that they use in this process of beautification? Oil of myrrh. Myrrh smells good and apparently is good for your skin too, I hear. So first off, we see myrrh is connected with beauty. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. Go back to the second book of the Bible. Exodus 30. Exodus chapter 30. We actually looked at this chapter last week. It's a chapter where God is explaining to Moses how the tabernacle, how the portable temple that they built was supposed to function. Look at verse 22. Exodus 30, 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. So in talking about the temple and the tabernacle and kind of how it functions, for the priests, they were supposed to be anointed by this oil And what's the kind of main ingredient besides the base olive oil? It's liquid myrrh. So secondly, we see myrrh connected with the priests and their anointing to serve God, something sacred. Now, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 3. We also looked at this, but the first week, that's a little bit after the Psalms, after Proverbs, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. And actually, in this chapter, we see gold and frankincense and myrrh, but I want to zero in on myrrh here. Look at Song of Solomon 3, verse 6. Song of Solomon 3, 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Okay, this is Solomon's wedding. It's a royal celebration of love. And what is one of the scents that everyone is smelling, even from afar? It's myrrh. Myrrh is a perfume used in the background. So thirdly, we see myrrh used in celebration, a celebration of love and marriage. So myrrh, so far, what we've seen is it's versatile. Myrrh is used as a cosmetic, but it's also used for consecration. It's also used for celebration. Now, one more, Genesis 37. Go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, verse 25. 37, 25. Look at your text. Then they sat down to eat. 
And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, you can stop there. Who's eating? Okay, you don't need to, like, study this whole thing. Who's eating is Jacob's sons. He has 12 sons. And what they have just done is decided that they're going to sell their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery to these guys who are going down to Egypt. Now, one of the crazy, this is one of the craziest stories in the Bible, by the way. But for our purposes today, notice that these guys, these Ishmaelites, already have some cargo besides this Hebrew slave. They already are carrying gum and balm and myrrh, and they're going down to Egypt. Now, okay, when you're a kid, people like to ask you this one question, okay? And if you're still a kid, you might know what I'm talking about. But adults, right, teachers and parents and random relatives, they like to ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And for me, I never knew, right? I, I, I didn't want to be a pastor when I was a kid. Um, I probably didn't even know I wanted to be a pastor until like six months ago. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but I didn't know I wanted to be a pastor. It wasn't on my radar at all as a kid. And I was trying to think, okay, what did I want to be? And I was like, I don't think I ever wanted to be anything. But then my parents a few years ago reminded me that actually when I was a little kid, what I wanted to be was an Egyptian. Now, there are a lot of problematic things with that statement. Uh, I won't get into that. That stated goal is not good. Um, but let me explain, okay? What happened was I kind of got into, like, learning about the pyramids and stuff. You know, I thought it was cool. Um, but the pyramids, they were actually huge graves for the pharaohs. So I kind of got into, like, okay, the pharaohs were in there, and then I found out about mummies, which I thought were awesome. And I learned about the embalming process and mummification, and I thought it was so cool. Hence, I wanted to become an Egyptian when I grew I wanted to be an alive one. I didn't want to be a mummy. Now, most of you guys, you know what mummies are, right, from movies, or maybe you were like a nerd like me in Egyptian culture. Most people know about mummies, but what most people don't know about mummies is that one of the main ingredients that they used in the embalming process was, guess, myrrh. Okay, it's not a trick question. They used natron, and they used myrrh to embalm these bodies. So, of course, the Egyptians needed merchants to bring myrrh in regularly. That's why these Ishmaelites, it says they're carrying myrrh down to Egypt to trade. The Egyptians needed myrrh to embalm people when important people died. So, we see myrrh as a cosmetic. We see myrrh as a perfume, as an anointing agent, both at weddings and at funerals, at burials. What's the common thread here? It's not as easy as with gold or as with frankincense. What's the common thread for myrrh? How does it tie together? Does it even tie together at all? Well, here's the thing about myrrh. The other thing. Myrrh shows up, okay, 19 total times in Scripture. If you do a search on Bible Gateway, that's what you'll see. And more than a quarter of those times, almost half of those times, we see myrrh either being traded or being given as a gift. For example, 1 Kings 10.25, every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Genesis 43.11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. 
And then we have Matthew 2, of course, where the wise men bring myrrh to the baby Jesus. And then we have Mark 15, 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. See, myrrh was something that you gave to people, something that you traded with people, something that you offered to people. And this is the common denominator. You ready? Myrrh was a very, very human gift. Gold was mostly royal. Frankincense was mostly religious. There were some exceptions, of course, but they each had strong associations. Myrrh stands out as being everywhere in human life. At the beginning of your life, at the end of your life, and everywhere in between. When you worship as a religious person, when you fall in love, when you want to impress someone higher up than you, when you're in pain, myrrh mixed with wine was for painkiller purposes. When you're grieving a loss, myrrh was everywhere. In the highs and in the lows. It's the fragrance in the background of your humanity. It's a superhuman gift. Not superhuman, but it's a very human gift connected with a wide gamut of human experiences. Every time we see myrrh, it's connected with people in some way. So think back to Matthew 2, okay? You can go back there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2, to our main text. The Magi show up. They pull out out of their treasures gold, and of course, he is the king of kings, so it's appropriate. Then they pull out pull out some frankincense, and he is the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But then lastly, they pull out myrrh. And where do you think Mary and Joseph's minds go when that happens? We don't want to speculate too much, but if you're an ordinary parent, an ordinary mother, you receive myrrh, right? And your mind goes to all the places that you normally smell myrrh, where myrrh is used. If you're an ordinary child, Maybe you think, uh, if you're an ordinary parent, maybe you think about the temple. Maybe you think about the priest. And your son, maybe he's not a Levite. Maybe he'll never be an official priest. But you think about anointing. You think about, okay, how is my child going to be used by God in their life? I think most believing parents think about that kind of thing. Like, how is this child going to be before God? What is God going to use them to do? Will they even be believers like me? Maybe you wonder, as an ordinary parent, about your child's future wedding, a celebration. You think about all the weddings that you go to, think about all the ones you've been invited to for strangers or distant relatives, and you smell the myrrh everywhere, and it smells good. But now you have your own child, your first child, and you're thinking, oh, you know, I wonder who my kid is going to marry. I wonder what my grandchildren are going to be like. Now, you know the story. Jesus never gets married, not in the traditional sense, of course. Jesus is anointing actually leads him to the cross. But before we move on, I want to ask you a question. And it might be a little painful, but I think it's important to ask anyway. See, when you get myrrh as a gift, I think it opens up a world of possibilities. Now, I want to ask you guys, if there's one gift that you would like to receive from God, what would it be? And I actually mean this in the most extreme sense this time. Don't think realistic. Okay, don't say, okay, I would like a $20 gift card to Amazon or something like that. Don't be modest. I mean, just be real with yourself. Don't tell me. I don't need to know because I can't do anything about it anyway. But if you wanted something from God, 
anything. Now remember, God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. If you could ask the God who can do anything for one thing, what would it be? Beyond new sweaters and maybe a a little bit of cash. I mean, is it a spouse? Is it a better marriage? Is it to look a certain way? Is it to be set apart for success? Maybe in the kingdom of God, maybe not. I mean, these dreams, these desires that we see connected with myrrh are actually the dreams and desires of humanity. They're common to man, to borrow the biblical phrase. What about to stop feeling pain, to stop hurting in some way? What about to see someone that you've lost again? I mean, these are the desires that have been the, uh, the case all the way throughout human history. Myrrh is a wonderful gift with mostly wonderful connotations, but the dark side of myrrh, the flip side of myrrh, is that it can also remind us of all these things that we don't have, that maybe even other people have, but we don't. And this leads to the second point, the vulnerable, the vulnerable, sorry, my mouth is kind of dry. The vulnerability, maybe someone could get me water real quick. Thanks, sorry. Well, I was, sorry, you're pregnant, my bad. Thank you, I appreciate it. <clears throat> Vulnerability, which is about where humanity ends up. So back to Matthew 2, if you're not there, Matthew 2. And if you're still getting there, I, wanted to, I want to tell you something real quick. I was reading a book about pastoring by a pastor this week. And it had nothing to do with myrrh at all. But then again, as I was preparing this, I realized that it also, on the other hand, had everything to do with myrrh. And this pastor was talking about how his grandparents had kind of raised him in many ways. And uh, he had always seen them kind of through the, the eyes of a child, you know. They were just his mama and papa, that's what he called them. But here he was years later, and now he's a grown man. He's a pastor, too. And he's still their grandson, but the relationship and even the expectation of who he is has changed a little bit. And his grandmother was on hospice, and she asked him if he could pray for her, you know, just be, you know, because she's going to die soon. Um, and he was transported in his mind to all these times when he was like a little kid, and they would say their prayers together. And they would pray kind of that old prayer that you guys might know. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray to the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray to you, Lord, my soul to take. And the crazy thing is, when he was a little kid, it was just a thing you said. But now that his grandma was on a hospice, and he's in his 30s, there was a sense where for the first time he was realizing that this is reality. And he said, actually, for the first time, and this was interesting, he kind of let us in let me into kind of his thought process. He said for the first time he was really realizing that his grandmother was a person outside of her relationship to him. That she was someone who had dreams, someone who had hopes, who had fallen in love herself, had children, seen them grow up, who had struggled with her own doubts and suffered in her own ways. He saw her not just as his grandmother, but as a human being. So they decided to pray together. Now, Matthew chapter 2. We looked at our passage as a whole in the first sermon, and in the past couple of weeks, we looked at the various threads. 
how kingship shows up, how worship is in there. But there's another thread. Look at this text again, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now stop there for a second. Why do you think all Jerusalem was troubled when Herod was troubled? Keep that in your mind. Keep reading. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod knew the prophecy. He believed the scripture to a certain extent. Whether or not he believed in a real Messiah or wanted to have faith in him is unclear. But for sure he believed that the people believed that there was going to be a real Messiah who would be king. And for him, this was a dangerous threat to his power as the incumbent king. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, real quick, sometimes we're so focused on the wise men and the plot that's moving and the star and the prophecy and the gifts. And of course, the child, which is right, that we don't stop to realize, though, what's at stake in this story. Kind of the drama that's here. Herod is powerful. He is jealous. Mary and Joseph are just regular people who don't have a lot. They, they, they don't have the means to protect Jesus if Herod wants to go after them. And historically, we know Herod was unstable. He was kind of a crazy guy. If you only know Matthew 2, you might think that Herod's almost like comedic. He's like a paper tiger who's all bite, uh, all bark and no bite. But if you know Herod from history, the real Herod, you know that this guy is crazy. He's wild in a terrible way. He's twisted. He was so demented, he killed several of his own children because he was afraid that they would take the throne from him, which is kind of the point of having heirs in the first place. But that's how crazy he was. Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the ancient world, said, I would rather be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because he knew how crazy Herod was. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then it goes right back to joy and gifts and worship. But in the light of Bethlehem's star, you might miss the dark clouds of Herod's wrath that are gathering on the horizon. But this time we're going to look at it. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Matthew doesn't forget and God doesn't forget that Herod is a very real threat that's coming. So God miraculously warns the Magi so they can get away, so they don't give Jesus away. Now, it's interesting Right away, after Jesus is born, God intervenes, in a sense, to keep the Magi away from Herod. Why do you think that is? Again, because Herod is actually dangerous. He's no empty threat. See, 
kind of the back story of all of this is that Jesus, from the moment he is born, his life is actually in danger. Jesus was a real human. And this means that Jesus was vulnerable, as we all are. He could die. I mean, if you think about the great Christian Christmas song, the hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. He actually was God made flesh. He became one of us. And though he was without sin, he wasn't without weakness. Life itself, you could say, became liable to death. And that was kind of the whole point. Let me read to you this quote from John MacArthur. Quote, Jesus came to earth, of course, to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to reveal the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to reveal God's love. He came to bring peace. He came to heal the sick. He came to minister to the needy. But all those reasons are incidental to his ultimate purpose. He could have done them all without being born as a human. He could have simply appeared like the angel of the Lord uh, often did in the Old Testament and accomplished everything in the list above without actually becoming a man. But he had one more reason for coming. He came to die. End quote. See, guys, to be human in this fallen world, it means to live your entire life in the valley of the shadow of death. Now keep reading. The story doesn't end in verse 12. Keep reading. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Another dream, another miracle, and it's so serious They need to get Jesus out of the country. We have to realize that in the Christmas story, there's this current of real danger that's surging throughout. There's some drama. If you don't know how the story ends, Jesus actually could die at this moment. But most of you guys know how the story ends. Does Jesus die right here? He doesn't. Spoiler alert, Jesus survives a little longer. Now, in stories like this, Okay, or in all stories. When I was in college, I studied English literature. I'm not exactly the best major for a job. Maybe that's why I became a pastor when I found out I couldn't be an Egyptian. But we studied English literature, and we used to talk about this plot device called Deus Ex Machina. Do you guys know what that is? Deus Ex Machina. It's Latin, and it literally means God out of the machine. Okay, now let me give you an example, okay? It's a literary device, it's a plot element where the person who writes the story gets the hero out of some danger with something that's totally ridiculous, where something just comes out of left field, maybe God, maybe something else, but something that's kind of outside the story to save the person. Okay, so for example, the example I saw online was in the old 1960s Batman movie with Adam West, right? They're like, they encounter this shark, And of course, like the shark is going to eat them and kill them. But then Batman says, Robin, hand me the shark spray that we have. And they spray the shark and they get out. Okay. It's just totally random. Why would he even have that? It doesn't even make sense. But it helps the person, the hero, get out of danger in the plot. And the reason why it's called that and why the Romans came up with that is because in Greek plays, sometimes what they would do is they would have this machine Uh, kind of this like cable thing, and they would lower down someone, an actor who was playing one of the Greek gods, and they would kind of just show up sometimes and help the hero when the hero was stuck. Hence, God out of the machine. God would intervene to help the main character. 
Now, right here in Matthew 2, it looks like that's what's happening. And it kind of is happening literally, right? Herod is going to comb through Bethlehem. He's going to kill every single kid, every single son, every single male child that's in this town that's under a certain age. But Jesus is warned by a dream from God, and he is able to get out. Or Joseph is warned, but Jesus is able to get out. Now, I bring this up because Deus Ex Machina highlights how Jesus gets out. Matthew 2, 1 through 13 seems to be the ultimate deus ex machina with God intervening to save Jesus's life, to keep him from any sort of harm, two dreams. But there's more going on if you look at verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Now look at verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod, okay, he had said he wanted to worship. He had lied through his teeth. He's a two-faced snake. He used worship as a disguise for a murderous, murderous heart. He throws a tantrum. And maybe in some Christmas plays, you would think it's funny. Herod, right? He gets foiled. He doesn't actually really get foiled in everything that he wants to do. His tantrum, his anger leads to horrific consequences. Every single male child under the age of two, two and under, were murdered by this jealous, unhinged king. You know, sometimes, sometimes we skim over this verse without really hearing what's going on, what's being described. Doors kicked down, children being mercilessly ripped out of their parents' arms, screaming, crying. If you take 15 seconds to think about it, Matthew 2.16 is like one of the worst things that could ever possibly happen. And it seems like Jesus is taken out of that. It seems like Jesus is distant from that, that somehow God himself is separate from that kind of thing. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was, uh, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, Rachel, the wife of Israel, it's a metaphor, but the grief isn't, the crying wasn't. We went from rejoicing exceedingly with great joy to the end of the chapter, inconsolable weeping. And you might ask in your heart of hearts, as I'm sure people did back in that day, Does God care about this kind of thing? Because that's the question. Does God care about that kind of thing? Does God care about me and the things that I'm going through? You might not want to ask that out loud. You might not want to show your doubt, but the doubts still creep in when you're at the hospital or you're at the funeral home or you're at the tension-saturated family gathering. Does God care? when you're struggling with different things, when you see people suffering and they're inconsolable, does God care about this kind of thing? If he cared, wouldn't he keep me from some of this harm? Like, wouldn't he intervene? Wouldn't he come out of the machine, as it were, and reach down and pluck me out of danger and out of pain and out of loss? If God cared for me, wouldn't he whisk me away? Wouldn't he at least send me a dream? Wouldn't he help me? And I understand the question. I understand the question, but we have to let God answer in his own way. And the answer is found in myrrh, actually. Jesus survives Herod's slaughter of these kids. It is miraculous. 
But Jesus is taken out of the frying pan and into the fire, so to speak. He survives, but the question is how long? And I think you guys know this, but maybe you don't know this. He survives long enough for Joseph, his father, to pass away at a young age. How do we know this? Because when Jesus begins his ministry, and everyone doubts him, they're like, who is this guy who is teaching us, and uh, how can he say these things? They call him the son of Mary. It's a small detail. But back in the day, you'd always refer to people by their father, the son of Joseph. The only reason you do that is if Joseph has long been gone out of the picture. And then if you remember at the crucifixion, what does Jesus say to the apostle John? He says, take care of my mom for me. If Joseph's around, you don't need someone to do that. Jesus had been the man of the house for a long time. Long enough to be betrayed by his closest friends. Long enough to be beaten and whipped and tortured and nailed to a Roman cross. And bearing the cross, truly bearing the sin of the world, he was in so much visible agony. Do you remember what people did? I already read it, but I didn't give the context. Do you remember what people did? They took some wine. And what did they mix into it? Myrrh. And they offered it to Jesus. Turn with me to Mark 15. I want to show you this, actually. Just so you can see it for yourself in Scripture. Mark 15. Look at verse 23. You can look at verse 22, actually, for a little context. Mark 15, 22. And they brought him to the palace, or the place, excuse me, called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did, he did not take it. He didn't take it. This is the first time that we see Jesus and myrrh again, okay, after the Magi. Myrrh was used... As a painkiller, I referenced that. And there have been studies today, even where they've looked at kind of the painkilling properties of myrrh. But the people back then already knew that. What they would do sometimes is they would mix myrrh into wine. And if you drank it, you would feel less pain. And specifically, when people were being executed by the Romans, some people who were sympathetic and merciful and gracious, what they would do is they would offer this wine free to these people who were being crucified so that they wouldn't hurt as bad. But what does it say at the end of verse 23? But he did not take it. See, here's the first thing you have to know about God. Not only does he care, he wouldn't even be here if he didn't, but he truly understands. Jesus actually was one of us, vulnerable, weak. He felt pain. He suffered, and he refused to ease that even for a moment. The reason why God got Jesus out of Bethlehem when he was two years or when he was a newborn was so that he could be on the cross and refuse the wine mixed with myrrh. You guys have to understand this because if this isn't true, then we're all wasting our time here. God doesn't care about us or he does. We have to understand this, the very existence of Jesus Christ in this world, the Jesus Christ who was born and was crucified is God's message that he gets it that he knows what it's like to give up everything, to feel pain, to suffer, to lose, and even to lose someone that you love. And this leads to the, to the third and final point. Third and final point. The charity. The charity, which points us to the heart of God. 
say the word charity today and you think of one of two things, okay? One, think about a nonprofit organization that helps people. Two, you think about giving charity, giving needy people money. But for the longest time in the English language, that's not what charity meant. For the longest time, charity was actually the word in English that translated the Greek word from the Bible, agape. See, there are four Greek words for love. And you know some of them. Phileo is brotherly love. That's where we get our city, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's kind of the family love, the camaraderie that you have with your relatives. You have eros, which is romantic love. But agape was a special kind of love. Agape was the word used to refer to God's unconditional love. Agape was a love, a commitment to an imperfect person that sought their highest good, even at cost of self, as my old pastor used to say. Agape was the highest. It was the divine. It was the greatest of all loves. Now turn with me to John 19. John chapter 19. After Jesus was crucified, and after he had drunk the cup of the wrath of God dry, and after he had become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, and after he had declared, it is finished, they buried him. Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of what? Of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The Jewish people at this time in history would dress the body of their dead with linens. They'd wrap them up tight, they'd cover them up, and then they would anoint the body or cover the body with spices. And of course, this makes sense, right? Because bodies, when they die, they start to decay and it smells terrible. You remember Lazarus? When Lazarus died and they wanted to roll back the stone, right? And then his sister's like, wait, no, it it stinketh. That's what it says in the KJV. Because they knew, right? They understood. It smelled bad. It, It smelled terrible. It was the scent of death. So what they would do is they would cover that smell up with something that smelled good. They would cover it up with something like myrrh. And that's exactly what Nicodemus did. He brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, probably more than what the Magi brought the first time, so much. And he brings it to Jesus. And it starts to come full circle. Myrrh was brought to Jesus at his birth. Myrrh was brought to Jesus at his death. The life of Jesus was bookended with the fragrance of the same substance, myrrh. See, guys, myrrh is a human gift that points to Jesus' humanity. And to be human means to be vulnerable. It means to be mortal, to suffer hardship and pain and loss. And so myrrh ultimately, when it leads us down its path, takes us to Jesus' tomb. 
Myrrh is what really death and loss smell like. You know that pastor I was talking about who prayed with his grandmother? I finished that book yesterday, actually. And he said that his grandma died on Christmas Day. And he was asked to preach at her funeral. And he shared a little bit about, you know, like their life. And he shared about the hope of Christ. And then they ate together uh, in the basement. They had a little, like, luncheon. And then life went on as it does. But he said at the funeral, he was given as her grandson her old Bible. And he keeps it at her desk, or at his desk, excuse me. And he's looked through it, and he's seen the bookmarks and the highlights. And remember I said, like, he started to see his grandma, not just as his grandma, but as a person. And he's flipping through it, and he sees that there's different things she's underlined and circled. And he got to Isaiah 53, where Jesus speaks, or where Isaiah speaks of Jesus the man of sorrows who came to bear our griefs and the entire chapter was highlighted. See, we got to understand that in the plan of God, it was always supposed to be this way. I don't know if Mary knew. There's a whole song about what Mary didn't know or knew. You could listen to it later. I don't know what Mary knew about myrrh, but God knew. God knew what myrrh was going to signify. It was always the plan for Jesus to enter into our world and into our suffering and take on our sin and shame and to die in our place. And why? Well, turn with me to John 3. We're almost done. John chapter 3. Who was the one who brought the myrrh to Jesus in the end? It's not the Magi. It wasn't one of his disciples or even one of his family members. It's a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of it to Jesus at his death. He was a Pharisee who was struggling. He was religious. He believed in God. He tried to live as good of a life as he could. But from how the conversation goes with Jesus, it becomes pretty clear that he had a lot of doubts. He had a lot of doubts about himself. He had a lot of doubts about if he was someone who would even make it into the presence of God in the afterlife. He was a man aware of his own mortality who wasn't sure if he was actually going to go to heaven. Now look at verse 1. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not even see it, much less enter into it. Skip down to verse 14. Same conversation. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus is speaking ahead to the cross where he will be lifted up for all to see. And now the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3, 16. But now you know the context a little bit more. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, a man struggling, a man that will see him later. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we said this before, but I'll say it for the last time. Christmas isn't so much about what you can give to God, but Christmas is about what he gave to us. And what he gave was his son so that 
in him, we who are human and mortal, who suffer greatly in this world, can have a hope beyond this life. What he gave us was his son, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them what? Exactly what Nicodemus was asking about, second birth, to be born again. Jesus didn't just come to live with us, to be one of us, but also to rescue us. That's why Athanasius, the old church father, once said, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. And why? It's right here. Jesus told it to Nicodemus, and I don't think Nicodemus ever forgot it, for God so loved the world. And the word there is agape. The word there is charity. Because God so loved this broken world, he, life himself, was born so that he might die. He, truth himself, came to be lied about. He came to walk and to weep with us and ultimately to save us. Now turn with me to Romans 8, and then we'll close this. Romans 8, our scripture reading for today. I know that there are things deep down in your heart of hearts that you'd want for Christmas. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to try to be all positive and say God's going to give you everything that you ever wanted. God never said you would do that. I'm not going to try to make you forget your pain and just be pumped up for a little while so that you could go home and suffer by yourself. Instead, I want to direct you and your heart to Romans chapter 8. Because I know that what you're going through might be hard. I know that suffering in general isn't easy to deal with. I know one sermon is not going to solve everything. But I also know that God knows too. Romans 8, look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is the apostle saying? He's saying that God gave his son to prove his love beyond the shadow of a doubt. He's given his best. He's given us himself. He's given us his love so we can trust in his goodness. See, whatever you're going through, know this on Christmas. Know this because God gave myrrh and God knew what myrrh would point to. Know this, that God has your best interest at heart. That God is leading you to the place he wants you to be. That someday, because of his grace, these afflictions will seem small. That's how great his goodness will be in the end. See, Jesus changed it. And here's the thing. He was laid in a tomb that smelled strongly of myrrh. You realize this. But when Mary and when John and Peter, on the third day, when they ran to it and the stone had been rolled away, and Jesus wasn't there. The linens were still there. And it still smelled like myrrh. But now instead of pointing to death, it pointed to resurrection. Myrrh forever to them would no longer be the scent of death's sting, but now life eternal. And myrrh would no longer be the fragrance of loss and the things that don't last, but now the fragrance of a new beginning when all things will be made new. We'll close here. We'll close here. <clears throat> Paul.
Paul asked, information please, why did my bird die? And information please, listen to the boy, and she must have sensed how sincerely he was asking. And instead of the normal platitudes, like, you know, things happen, things that we as adults might try to say to kids when we don't really know what to say, she said, Paul, always remember that there are other worlds to sing in. A little while later, Paul's family moved across the country, and this meant a different operator. He kind of forgot about it. He grew up. He learned how telephones worked. He started to really appreciate, though, what uh, that woman did for him, how kind she was, how generous. And then one day, he was flying as an adult, and he had a layover in the city he grew up in. And without thinking, he just decided to dial the operator just to see what would happen. And a voice came on the other end. Information. It was her. Same voice, same woman. So he said, can you tell me how to spell fix? She was like, oh my gosh, is this Paul? And she remembered him. It it had been like probably 15 years or something like that. And he was like, oh, crazy, you know, like, how are you doing? Like, I, I just wanted to call and say thank you if you were still there for being so nice to me. All those years meant a lot. It's a sweet moment. She said, me too. You know, I never had any kids, so it was special for me too. And he said, you know, if I'm ever in town again, I'll call you. And she said, oh, that'd be great. You know, my name's Sally. Not information, please. So you can ask for me. But three months later, he was back at the airport. And he called the operator, this time with expectation. But when he heard the voice say information, it wasn't her. So he asked, he said, uh, Kind of weird, but is the other operator there? Is Sally there? And the person was like, oh, um, sorry, Sally isn't here, um, but uh, do you know her or why are you asking for her? I said, oh, she's just an old friend. I'll call back another time. And the new operator said, oh, is this Paul? Uh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but Sally was in poor health and she passed away a few weeks ago, but she left a note if Paul called. <clears throat> It says, there are other worlds to sing in. And she said, you'll know what it means. Sorry, dry throat, you know how it goes. But that's really it. That's it. Because Christmas, it's a difficult time for a lot of people. But myrrh, as the final gift, what it means is that Christmas is a time where God joined us in that difficulty. Christmas is a time where we're reminded of loss. We're reminded of all the things we don't have, where we feel it, where we wish for things that might never be again in this world. But myrrh points to the truth that Christ has shown us God's love and that everything will work together in the end for good. That there's a different better, new, eternal, glorious world just beyond the horizon of this life. I'll finish with the end of that John MacArthur quote. Here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. 
That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. So that we could live. Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you this afternoon with thanksgiving. God, it's an amazing thing to think about what you gave us in the person of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would help every single person in this room, every person who hears this, every person who thinks about what myrrh means and its significance. I pray that you would give them an assurance of your love. God, we know that your love is truly better than life. God, I just pray that for those here who are struggling to believe that, that you would help them to believe. God, I pray that you would help us to feel it if it feels distant. God, I pray that you would help us to know it if we don't know it already. God, we look forward to a better day in the future. We're thankful that you are the one who gave us that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.